Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda, giving a chat about the anarchy, a chaotic period of English history during the 12th century, that was brought on by a succession crisis when two people, Stephen of Blois and uh, Empress Matilda, fought each other furiously for years and then slightly less furiously for a few more years after that, both seeking to secure the English crown for themselves. This is a very important chapter of English history that came about a, a generation or two after the Norman conquest of England and, and William the Conqueror, episode 76, get across it, and it took place, as I mentioned, due to this succession crisis, uh, a crisis that, was, uh, that came on when King Henry I, one of the sons of William the Conqueror, died without a legitimate male heir. Uh, and it resulted in a decade and a half of devastating civil war before its eventual resolution. Both Stephen and Matilda were grandchildren of William the Conqueror, and both of them were determined to see themselves on the English throne, which they both considered to be theirs by right. And all of England was swept up into this conflict, as indeed was the Duchy of Normandy over on the other side of the English Channel on the continent. And the war was long, it was hard fought, and it was absolutely devastating. The anarchy has a long and a, and a complex story, and today we'll be doing a bit of a whirlwind tour through all the important bits, including setting the stage uh, to the background of the conflict, what happened before it began, and also chatting about its ultimate legacy, the things that happened after it, and of course, all the stuff that happened in the middle while the war was being fought and how it affected everyone from nobles and kings all the way down to, to peasants and commoners. Now, there is, of course, as ever, a lot to get across today. So we're going to get stuck in more or less straight away here. We're not going to have a great big long intro this time around. Let's get underway. A bit of classic medieval history for you to enjoy. Here we go with the story of the anarchy. Here it comes. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1138, which is the year that the anarchy began. Although, actually, no. We'll go back a little bit further to, as I say, set the scene and talk about how it actually kicked off. And to do that, we go back to the reign of King Henry I of England, who in 1120... No, actually, no, we will need to go back even further to explain who King Henry I was. So let's go all the way back here, all the way to 1066, as we so often do when it comes to English and British history, one of the most important years in the realm's history, because as you may know, 1066 saw the successful Norman conquest of England, which, as I said, you can hear all about in episode 76, Get Across It. In 1066, there was a Norman duke who was so sick of being known as William the Bastard that he decided to conquer England just to get himself a new nickname. William the Conqueror, as he became known, defeated King Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Hastings and in doing so, claimed the English crown for himself forever changing the landscape of English history, English culture, and indeed the English language as a new dynasty of Norman rulers took control of England. 
William the Conqueror died in 1087, over 20 years after his conquest, and he was succeeded as king by his third son, William II. Um, his eldest son, Robert, Robert Curthose, uh, he instead got the Duchy of Normandy, and he didn't get the uh, the Kingdom of England. Why? Because all his life, Robert had been nothing but a huge pain in William's ass, all the way back to when he mounted a full-scale rebellion against his dad back in 1077 after, this is not a joke, after his brothers, William and Henry, emptied a chamber pot over his head. So, even a thousand years ago, I can tell you, without, you know, TikTok to post stuff like this too, young, idiotic men were still pulling dumb, idiotic pranks on each other. So when boomers talk about mobile phones on social media rotting our brains, you can just remind them that, that even as far back as the 11th century, exalted medieval royalty were doing the sorts of things that would have bagged them Oh. So many likes and comments these days. Anyway, because of this rebellion and his generally ordinary attitude as a prince, Robert Curthose almost got disinherited by his dad, William the Conqueror, but William eventually relented. He granted Robert the the Duchy of Normandy on his death instead of the actual kingdom, uh, while the Kingdom of England, as I say, went to William II. Now, William II and Robert Curthose, they had various scraps over the years about uh, about their respective lands. Neither of them were, were very happy about um, about the situation left to them by uh, by, by their dad. But uh, eventually they reconciled. They named each other as their heirs, um, and things were going a little bit more a little bit more smoothly than they had been until 1100, the year 1100, when William II died, and out of nowhere comes the youngest brother Henry. Henry claims the English throne. He had himself crowned before Robert Curthose could react. He then married the daughter of the Queen of Scotland, a woman named Matilda, and then, just for good measure, also invaded Normandy. So just like his old man before him, Henry proved to be a very able conqueror. He seized control of Normandy. He brought it under his royal authority as the new King of England. And that was that. Essentially, Henry had, in in the days of his youth, as you'll remember, dumped a literal chamber pot on his eldest brother's head. But now, with the, the, the invasion and conquest of, of Normandy, he had also dumped a figurative one uh, as well. So that's how Henry established himself as the King of England and how he subjugated the Duchy of Normandy uh, in, in addition to this. And one of the reasons that I'm giving you all this background is that I'm trying to set the scene here in having you realise that this was a period of great political instability. England has been freshly conquered. There are claims for the throne flying around all over the place, and there is not a firmly established royal line of succession. Brothers are fighting brothers. It's an absolute mess. But it's only going to get worse from here, let me tell you. This is just a taste of the chaos that's to come with this story. Because now with Henry Largen in charge, with his realm a little more secure, um, he's doing things like facing down external threats from France and Flanders and Wales. He's had to deal with uh, internal issues here and there, rebels and whatnot. But the biggest issue that he faces, once he's sort of got things under control at least a little bit, is providing the realm with an heir. And while he did have a son with his wife Matilda, uh, young William Adeline, William didn't stick around for as long as, uh, as perhaps, perhaps Henry would have hoped, uh, because in 1120, uh, the, the English royal family had a bit of bad luck known as the White Ship Disaster. A bit of bad luck is a, maybe something of an understatement for the people involved in the, in the disaster. But uh, keep an eye out for the next Quarter Hours History episode. It'll be, it'll be out right after this one, a couple of days from now. We'll talk about the White Ship Disaster properly, uh, but I'll give you the quick version here uh, in case you haven't heard the story. In 1120, uh, a ship, the White Ship, in fact, it set sail across the English Channel from Normandy over towards England, carrying around 300 people, and one of the people aboard was William Adeline, the only legitimate son of Henry I, and therefore the heir to the uh, the English crown. 
And as you might have already guessed, given that it's called the White Ship Disaster, the ship sank, and all but one of the people aboard died. And that one survivor was, believe it or not, a butcher named Beryl. No, it wasn't wasn't William Adeline. He, he died with all the rest of them. And this was, to put it mildly, a very bloody big problem for Henry and for England more broadly. Because as we've talked about, this was a time of great political instability. And without a clear-cut succession plan, England risked being plunged into chaos, war, and anarchy. And sure enough, when Henry I died in 1135 without a clear-cut succession plan, England was plunged into chaos, war, and anarchy. Henry only had one single other legitimate child, a daughter named Matilda, same as same name as her mother, the, the Scottish princess. He had plenty of illegitimate children, boatloads of them, in fact. Um, apparently, Henry couldn't keep it in his pants. He's off shagging like a medieval Austin Powers, but... The only legitimate kid he, he'd had, uh, along with William, was Matilda, his daughter. And this was a big problem in attempting to undertake a smooth succession, because while Henry had announced his daughter Matilda as his heir, there were plenty of people who didn't want her as the Queen of England. Now, there are a few reasons for this. Um, after her first husband, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry V, had died, Matilda, Matilda had remarried, uh, remarried a bloke named Geoffrey Plantagenet of Anjou, a French noble and a neighbour to the Duchy of Normandy. But I can tell you this, Geoffrey was not a very popular bloke with England's nobility. Most of them now, in the wake of of William's conquest, are Normans. And uh, generally speaking, Normans didn't like Angevins, and uh, they certainly didn't want a bloody Angevin next to their queen on her throne. Um, but there was another reason as well that Matilda wasn't particularly popular with uh, with a lot of the English nobles, and that was because she was a woman, um, which was... An unfortunately common way of thinking back then, women just weren't considered by many to to be fit to lead a kingdom. Matilda, however, uh, who styled herself as Empress Matilda, thanks to her first marriage, uh, she was the heir that Henry had chosen. And so she did have plenty of supporters of her own uh, for her claim to the English throne who wanted to support the the former king, Henry, right, and and do do his bidding, uh, do what he said he wanted to have happen after he died. But even with her dad giving her the nod for the top job, and even with all of these barons uh, lining up to support her, Matilda still wasn't able to snag the throne for herself, because after Henry died, it wasn't Matilda who became queen, but instead a bloke named Stephen who became king. Stephen of Blois was a grandson of William the Conqueror, just as Matilda was a granddaughter, and he used this fact to claim the English throne for himself, very opportunistically here. He was a powerful and and a very wealthy Anglo-Norman noble Uh, throughout Henry's rule. He'd been quite an influential figure. And when Henry died, he was in a great position to make the most of the situation. Because Matilda and Geoffrey, they're busy fighting against Normans down in Anjou, which is not a good look when trying to claim a throne throne dominated by Normans. Um, And any other potential claimants uh, that could have contested Stephen were either a long way away from England or they were too busy to respond quickly enough. But Stephen... On the other hand, he, as soon as he senses this opportunity, he races over the English Channel, he zooms across to London, and he does a lightning-quick round of handshakes on the campaign trail. He promises the church new religious freedoms. He promises the people of London new rights. He's even got Henry's old steward, right, to to come out in public and swear that Henry had, on his deathbed, changed his mind about the succession and actually wanted Stephen to inherit instead. Okay, mate. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I bet he did. Yeah, all right. Tell your story, Walker, mate. But look, it it worked. It This actually worked. Stephen was crowned uh, as the King of England in Westminster Abbey in late December 1135. Wham, bam, thank you, 
archbishop, I guess. And that's it. He's king. Except that's not it. Not even slightly. Because uh, while some other potential claimants to the throne, like Stephen's older brother Theobald, they backed down and decided that they wouldn't contest Stephen, his rise to power would not go uncontested for very much longer. In time, his opponents would come for him, the supporters of Empress Matilda would seek his downfall, and in doing so would bring about one of the most tumultuous and chaotic periods in English and British history. However, Matilda didn't really press her claim after Stephen took the throne. Not immediately, anyway. She had enough to be getting on with back in Anjou. She's fighting the Normans. Still, still not a good look. Uh, and she's also pregnant at this stage as well. So she's, she's got more than enough going on. Um, as did Stephen, for that matter. There was all the usual trouble, you know, up north. The, the Scots were pursuing their national pastime of making life as difficult as possible for the English. The Welsh were causing him headaches. And then on top of this, he's got Geoffrey and Matilda harassing his people down in Normandy. It's hard to say if he did a good job dealing with all of this as a new king. While he did come to terms with Scotland, um, he lost considerable political influence over the north of England. He gave up fighting the Welsh, essentially. And, and even after booting the Angevins out of Normandy, they had burnt and raised and pillaged the duchy quite extensively. So things aren't going too well for him. And on top of all this, right, to make things even worse, it had been a very expensive couple of years for Stephen dealing with all these uh, these issues that he faced. Um, not only did he have to pay a lot of soldiers and mercenaries, he also rather foolishly spent a lot of money on maintaining on maintaining a lavish royal court. Now, Stephen, as a king, was pretty well liked. He was generally uh, generally someone that people got along with. He was uh, he was an agreeable and uh, and reasonable king. But he certainly had his enemies, and by the year 1138, the year that I, the, the year that I said we were going to go all the way back to here at the beginning of the episode, oops, um, uh, Stephen was out of money, and the cracks were beginning to show in his rule, and his uh, his foes began to circle. While plenty of people still supported his uh, his kingship, there were plenty of other people who supported Matilda's claim to the throne instead, even if she even if she herself wasn't actively pressing it, and it was in 1138 that there was a big shift in the balance of support that these two leaders had when a bloke named Robert of Gloucester kicked off the period of civil war that would go on to become known as the Anarchy when he rose in rebellion against Stephen, instead declaring his support for Matilda. Robert was one of the very many illegitimate children of Henry I and therefore was Matilda's half-brother, but he'd done well for himself. Even as an illegitimate uh, child, he was, uh, he'd been granted money and land and he had a lot of power And it was he, more than Matilda herself, really, that ignited and pressed her claim to the English crown. As I mentioned, Matilda hadn't really been been pressing her claim, um, but with a very powerful Robert of Gloucester now actively fighting Stephen on her behalf in the southwest of England, she decided, well, sure, why not? Strike while the iron's hot on the continent as well. And so the Angevines, they attacked Normandy from Anjou, um, with uh, Matilda's husband Geoffrey getting stuck in and fighting Stephen's interests there. Well, in the meantime, never one to miss a trick up in the north, King David of Scotland also threw his hat in the ring, announcing his support for Matilda as well. Why? Well, two reasons. He's a Scottish king. He's been given an opportunity to fight the English. He's going to take that every single, every, every day of the week. He's going to take that opportunity. But secondly, right, Matilda was King David's niece. King David was the brother of Matilda's mother, also called Matilda. Very confusing. He was the brother-in-law of the dead Henry I, right? He is Matilda's, the Empress Matilda's uncle. So, again, the impenetrable tapestry of, uh, of, of, of European royalty continues to be unpicked thread by thread. But uh, the bottom line is this. Stephen, he has a real fight in his hands. He's being attacked in the north 
uh, he's being attacked in the southwest, and he's also being attacked. This is in England, and then also down in Normandy, he's also facing uh, the the fear of the Angevins, uh, being led by by Matilda's husband Geoffrey. All these people seeking to put Matilda on the throne instead. So, an absolute crisis here for uh, for, for Stephen. Um, and by eleven thirty nine. Matilda had done an excellent job in overrunning much of Stephen's territory in Normandy and now was eyeing off a full-scale invasion of England, just like her grandpa before her. Stephen responded by redoubling his efforts to raise forces in England to defend his realm and uh, assigned those he considered loyal to command the forces that he raised. Also, in in an attempt to bolster the kingdom's defences, he... uh, he made the questionable move of seizing many church-held castles and fortresses. This definitely helped in making the, uh, the making his kingdom more defensible, but uh, it didn't make him very popular amongst the clergy, which would come back to bite him on the ass a little bit, as you'll see. But all the same, uh, with his newly raised armies, his newly uh, promoted commanders, and his newly seized castles and fortresses, this did put this did put King Stephen in a, uh, a, a pretty decent state of readiness for the Angevin invasion, which finally came in 1140, when Matilda's forces sailed across the English Channel and landed on England's southern coast. They positioned themselves in the rebellious southwest that had been cleared out by Robert of Gloucester. Uh, most of the southwest of England was, by 1140, under, under Matilda's authority, as well as southern Wales in addition. But Stephen moved quickly to respond to the Angevin invasion. He moved to confront Matilda and her forces and actually managed to take her prisoner after besieging Arundel Castle where she was staying. Now, this uh, decisive action prompted a truce between the two sides. Um, And, you know, given how crucial the capture of an enemy leader could be in wartime, this was a huge moment for Stephen, potentially an opportunity for him to nip this whole conflict in the bud. Or... It would have been an opportunity for him to do that had he not just more or less immediately released Matilda as his prisoner. Stephen, mate, what the bloody hell are you doing? It's still uncertain exactly why he did this. Um, It could have been for chivalric reasons. He could have thought that, you know, keeping a woman as a prisoner was unworthy conduct of a king. Uh, Or it could have been because Stephen didn't really consider her to be the main threat. He considered Robert of Gloucester to be his real enemy. Whatever the case... Stephen released Matilda, and I don't need to tell you that this proved to be a bad move, as the figurehead for the entire movement against him was now back out and about. She established a royal court in Gloucester and began to rule over the lands that were under her control, pushing their borders closer and closer to London, once again taking the fight to Stephen. So Stephen, once again, now he's on the back foot, he's juggling a million different things. He's fighting a war on three fronts against Matilda, against Robert, and against David. Um, He's having a bloody terrible time at this stage before the end of the year before the end of 1140 Stephen had to withdraw back towards London to try to consolidate his position and ensure that he didn't he didn't lose his capital to the advancing Angevins and what's worse right a a few new people were starting to defect there were people changing sides and going over to Matilda uh, most notably leading to Stephen's loss of, uh, of the very important Lincoln Castle a fortress in well obviously Lincoln uh, in, in England's East Midlands Ranulf of Chester, uh, a bloke who held the castle, he defected to Matilda, and Stephen responded by besieging the castle, attempting to bring it back under his control. But before long, Robert of Gloucester came to break this siege in Lincoln Castle, uh, attacked Stephen's forces, leading to the Battle of Lincoln, which was a total disaster for Stephen. Not only did he lose this battle, but he was also taken prisoner by Robert. And Robert wasn't chivalric enough to release him as Stephen had released Matilda. Oh, no, no, no. 
Stephen, now a prisoner of the enemy, he could only watch as Matilda began to make preparations to crown herself as queen, with the support of now the church, who you'll remember Stephen had pissed off mightily when he had seized all those castles off them. However, Matilda, despite the wind well and truly blowing in her direction, never managed to secure a coronation, even with Stephen behind bars. Because when Matilda rode to London to be crowned in Westminster Abbey, as she needed to be to be recognised as the Queen of England, those who were still loyal to Stephen in and around London, despite his imprisonment, they refused to let her into the city, and the fighting began anew. Matilda had to, had to flee in the face of all the nobles that were still on Stephen's side, and so never officially became queen. But this was far from the end of the road for Matilda uh, by, by a long stretch, because even if she couldn't take London, she and her supporters were still in a great position. They still controlled much of England and Normandy. They still enjoyed the support of the church. They still had plenty of nobles on their side. However, there were still those nobles who wouldn't come over to Matilda's cause, even, even though the wind is still, as I say, firmly blowing in her direction. Many Norman nobles were worried that if Matilda uh, were completely triumphant over Stephen, that they would lose their lands, lose their lands and holdings, that they would be, uh, they would, a grudge would be held against them for, for staying on Stephen's side for too long. And so they stuck by Stephen, who, while he was imprisoned, had his affairs masterfully managed by Matilda. Yes, Matilda. Another Matilda. So many Matildas. This one is his wife, uh, his wife Matilda, Queen Matilda rather than Empress Matilda. Queen Matilda quickly moved in on London when the city rebuffed Empress Matilda, uh, establishing herself there as the representative of Stephen. And this worked. Stephen's supporters rallied to Queen Matilda as she beat the war drums against Empress Matilda. Ah, bloody hell. And believe it or not, in 1141, uh, Queen Matilda led an attack on Empress Matilda's forces in Winchester that saw another very high-profile prisoner being taken. It wasn't Empress Matilda this time. No, it was Robert of Gloucester. So now a major leader on both sides of the conflict is in enemy custody. And this, quite aside from muddying the waters as to what the future of this conflict was going to be, also gave everyone a chance to just chill out a bit, right? It gave everyone a bit of breathing room, an opportunity to just stop and have a bit of a break and a think about things. Both sides eventually came together to, to negotiate and, uh, and figure out what the next steps were going to be, and both sides ultimately agreed to a, uh, a mutual exchange of prisoners. Both Stephen and Robert were released. And then, a, aside from a, a brief siege in Oxford that saw Stephen once again attempt to capture Matilda, he didn't manage to. I guess if he had, he probably wouldn't have been so quick to let her go this time. Um, the Civil War slowed into something of a stalemate, really, for much of the early 1140s. Matilda and the Angevins held Normandy and part of England. Uh, Stephen held the rest of England. And although there were a few, you know, relatively minor battles, a couple of uprisings here and there, until 1146, not too much changed, really, and the conflict lost a lot of momentum. It wasn't until 1147 that things began to change and the anarchy began to get back into gear. And it was because of a couple of things that happened that year. Uh, the first was the death of Robert of Gloucester. With his death, a lot of the wind was taken out of Matilda's sails, which further diffused tensions between um, uh, her and Stephen. 
There was another event as well that took place that year, as I say, uh, that would slow down the anarchy even further. The Second Crusade, many knights and soldiers decided to take a break from killing each other to instead go and kill people in the Holy Land. And in addition to these relatively important developments, uh, many smaller nobles throughout England and Normandy, they, they began to make smaller individual peace agreements with one another. They were sick of fighting, even if the conflict between Matilda and Stephen continued in name. The people who were actually engaged in fighting it kind of got sick of doing this and therefore, as I say, made these small-scale peace agreements with each other. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. But hang on one second, you're saying. Two minutes ago, you were talking about how the, the anarchy was going to get back into gear. And now you're talking about bloody Robert of Gloucester dying. You're talking about the Second Crusade. You're talking about people getting sick of fighting and all the rest of this. What's, what's, what's going on, mate? Is, is the anarchy coming back or not? Well, let me tell you, there is a third and final factor, a third and final thing that happened in the year 1147 that would ultimately get the anarchy well and truly back on course. And that is... The introduction of an all-new character here, ready to come and stake his claim, get the anarchy back up and running, and ha- and shoot his shot at becoming the King of England. A young man by the name of Henry began to press his claim to the English throne. Yet another claimant, you're thinking, where the bloody hell has this one come from? Well, this one has come from none other than Empress Matilda and her husband, Geoffrey Plantagenet. Henry was their son, and he very much wanted his grandfather's crown back. Thank you very much. And so, in 1147, Henry mounted a small and, uh, well, pitifully unsuccessful invasion of England. To be honest, 1147 wasn't really Henry's finest hour, to be honest. Um, This invasion failed spectacularly when Henry ran out of money to pay the mercenaries that he'd hired, and Stephen responded to this invasion by paying the mercenaries himself, getting Henry off the hook with them, but also just stopping the invasion in its tracks and sending Henry back uh, back to Normandy from whence he'd come. Now, you look at that and go, well, that's a weird thing for Stephen to have done. He's paying the bills of his oppo- of the opposing army, but there's good reason to think that Stephen was quite clever in doing this. Uh, he may have done this to prove a point, certainly, or he may have just done this to try to continue to defuse the anarchy, which, as I've said, seemed to be petering out a little bit. Uh, he may have wanted to try to prevent Henry from arcing up again, right, to try to chill him out a bit by doing him a good turn, saving him from all these pissed-off mercenaries. But... This didn't work if that was what Stephen was hoping to do, because in the coming years, right, Henry only got more and more aggro. Uh, He returned to England in 1149. He started to negotiate for support uh, from other enemies that Stephen had had in the past, like that bloke I mentioned before, right, the defector, Ranulf. And uh, young Henry was able, in the end, to gather a lot of support for his cause. All the people who, uh, well, many of the people, I should say, who supported Matilda's claim now came over to young Henry as well. And... um, on top of this, he was announced as the new Duke of Normandy. Uh, apparently, he was very well-liked and quite capable as a leader. But more importantly than anything else when it came to his campaign for the, for the English crown was what he did in 1152, when he turned the political and military balance of the whole conflict on its head when he married 
Eleanor of Aquitaine, episode 134, get across it. This marriage would help to define Henry's career. It meant that he came into possession of a huge amount of land and wealth through his new wife. Uh, Eleanor was, as you may remember from episode 134, very rich, very powerful, and she aided her young husband. He he really was quite young, 10 years younger than her, in fact, uh, in pressing his claim to the English throne. And so, in 1153, with Eleanor's help, Henry had gathered an invasion force bolstered by many of those who had supported Matilda previously and mounted a full-scale invasion of England just like his great-grandpa William the Conqueror. Fighting broke out once again and it looked like the anarchy may very well be back on back on its way in full force because after his invasion, Henry was able to seize control of, of parts of the southwest, although not as much as his mum had admittedly, but he did have much of the north on his side this time with uh, allies like Ranulf. So Stephen controlled essentially the south and the east coasts of England and much of the Midlands, while Henry and his allies controlled some of the southwest and, uh, and southern Wales, in addition to the west half of northern England and, of course, Normandy. So... At this stage, England might have fallen back into civil war uh, as the two sides began to face off against each other once again. uh, There were battles, there were sieges here and there, just like the bad old days. But this time around, things were different on, uh, on a very fundamental level because after over 15 years of fruitless conflict, there were a huge number of barons who were sick and tired of the whole thing. They were so ready to put it all behind them and end the Civil War once and for all. Now, we'll talk about some of the effects of the war in just a little bit, which will help to explain how bad things were and just how much people wanted the war to end. But suffice to say for now, people were so sick and tired of the anarchy, and they were very ready for it all to be over. So much so, in fact, that as Henry and Stephen were getting ready for a big battle at Wallingford, members of the nobility and the clergy, they stepped in like a teacher between two scrapping school kids and forced them to sit down and use their words. A proposal was put forth to end the conflict. Stephen would remain king, uh, but he would name Henry as his heir, so Henry would inherit when Stephen died, instead of, poor bastard, Stephen's son Eustace, who heard about this idea and was as cross as a frog in a sock. He was absolutely furious, but then he solved any potential issues with the idea by just going off and dying a month later. So, you know, that was it for him, easy peasy. There was a bit more fighting while the two sides came to terms, but the alternatives were obvious here. They could either make peace, right, or there would be another generation of war and chaos and death and anarchy. And so as a result, at long, long last, in November 1153, Henry and Stephen came together and made a final peace agreement with the Treaty of Wallingford. Stephen adopted Henry as his heir. Um, His other remaining son, William, had the very good sense to accept this decision and renounce his claim to the throne in exchange for a, a cushy position under Henry's authority. And Henry was taken on as one of Stephen's senior advisors, so he could play an active role in the governance of the kingdom that he would then later inherit once Stephen died. And so the Treaty of Wallingford was, for all intents and purposes, the end of the anarchy at long last. Stephen and Henry made peace, and England's long civil war had finally come to an end. However, despite the fact that the civil war didn't erupt again, despite the fact that conflict didn't break out once more, it would be 
a little misleading to think that the Treaty of Wallingford, Wallingford was a final and definitive and lasting peaceful end to this conflict. Now, it was technically, sure, but there's only one reason for this, right? There's only one reason that the Treaty, Treaty of Wallingford actually ended the anarchy, and that is that Stephen died on the 25th of October, 1154, under a year after the treaty was signed. And had he not, honestly, the treaty and the peace that it brought about probably wouldn't have lasted all that long because Henry was still very impatient to take the throne. There were rumours at the time that swirled around saying that Henry was planning to assassinate Stephen, although he didn't. Stephen died of, uh, of illness. But had Stephen remained on the throne for you know years and years, had he avoided assassination, it's very likely that Henry would have broken the terms of the peace and began the fighting again. Broadly speaking, the Treaty of Wallingford is viewed by historians as something that would have only been a very temporary peace measure had Stephen not died less than a year after it was signed. But he did die, and Henry was crowned as King Henry II, and... Uh, Particularly historically aware listeners will realise that this was the beginning of an extremely long-standing dynasty of English kings. William the Conqueror and his sons, like Henry I, they were of House Normandy. However, Henry II was not. He was the son of the daughter of William the Conqueror, and therefore he was of a different house altogether. He was of his father's house, and his father was, of course, Geoffrey of Anjou, Geoffrey Plantagenet. Henry II was the first of a great many Plantagenet kings in England known as the Angevin kings. The, the Plantagenets would rule England for three centuries after the death of Stephen until ultimately the House of Lancaster seized power at the turn of the 15th century with Henry IV. And so it was, as I say, the anarchy, the end of the anarchy was the beginning of a very another very important chapter in England's history when one of the longest standing dynasties ruled over the realm for centuries to come. Anyway, the anarchy came to an end and Henry II became king. His mother, Empress Matilda, represented him uh, and his affairs in Normandy. Uh, despite never attaining the throne herself, she still had a monumental impact on English history, ultimately living to the age of 65, dying in 1167. And Henry II, on the other hand, his son, he lived until 1189, building the Grand Angevin Empire and eventually having to see off challenges to his rule. Uh, just as he, as a young man, had harassed Stephen for the English throne, his sons, as young men, did the same to him. And his empire quickly collapsed in the years after his eventual death. You can hear more about this in the episode about Eleanor of Aquitaine, episode 134. Get across it. But to wrap things up here, we will, uh, we will put all the feuding royals and nobles aside and instead address one final question. Why is this period called the Anarchy? Why is it called the Anarchy rather than being something called, like, I don't know, the English Civil War? I guess that name is already taken, uh, although it wasn't at the time. Um, or why is it called the Angevin Uprising or the Norman Ascendancy Crisis? Why isn't it called something like that? It's, it's not called any of these things. It's called the Anarchy because, for most of it, that's exactly what England was reduced to, near total anarchy. As is always the case, the real victims of conflicts like these are the ordinary people, not the rich and powerful. And in the anarchy, ordinary people suffered like you would not believe. While leaders like Stephen and Matilda were busy fighting their long war, the ordinary people of England and Normandy were put through the ringer. Lawlessness engulfed the realm, with local barons doing more or less whatever they wanted to the people underneath them, without any oversight from or accountability to a higher political power like the king. 
Not only would these barons fight each other, attempting to seize neighbouring lands and the like, they also exploited the people over whom they held authority like never before. And it wasn't just barons who went after ordinary people. Because of the widespread lawlessness, there had never been a better time to be a bandit. Roving gangs of outlaws would prey upon everyday innocent folk who couldn't now depend upon protection from anyone. Farms would be looted and burned, homes robbed and razed, churches broken into and pillaged. And then there, and then there was, the, was the death. Death everywhere. People either being murdered by brigands and bandits or just the knights of particularly morally unscrupulous barons. If they didn't starve to death instead of being murdered because they had no food. Famines spread across England as property and land and stores were burned and destroyed plunging people into poverty and starvation. Migrants desperately fled from battles and fighting, overloading areas that had been less directly touched by the war itself. It was a terrible, terrible period to have gone through, with the fabric of English society collapsing as this protracted war continued to be fought. Violence, disorder, famine, hardship, anarchy reigned across England, and so the name is a very well-chosen one. While the severity of the lawlessness and chaos has been called into question in more recent times, with modern historians being a bit more critical of the term anarchy to to describe this period of history, the name is still stuck, and it was doubtlessly a terrible experience for those who lived through it. But whatever the case, and whatever it's called, this chapter of English history was a very important one indeed, and one that would course, go on to shape the kingdom during a period of great change and upheaval, and also one that would go on to set the stage for future chapters of history, with the establishment and the collapse of the Angevin Empire, England's ongoing conflict with Scotland, the Wars of the Roses, and so much more besides. But those are all stories for another time. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of King Stephen, Empress Matilda, and the Anarchy. And I do hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it's an interesting story. One that, again, I don't really feel like I was... I, I never really do, but don't really feel like I was able to get across as comprehensively as I'd like. But there are only so many hours in the day. And uh, hopefully this gave you a, at least a decent enough overview of, uh, of, of this fascinating conflict, this devastating conflict. And... Uh, Again, how it would go on to influence and impact uh, English history in the future. All the boring housekeeping stuff now to close out the show as ever. Uh, I want to remind you that Half Ass History is the place to go if you want to get in touch with the show. The contact form up and running once again. Uh, head over to halfasshistory.net and use the contact form to get in touch if you've got uh, a topic suggestion or some feedback or anything else that's on your mind uh, that, uh, that you want to get in touch about. Uh, I had some terrific emails this week. Uh, thank you to everyone who's, uh, who's been getting in touch with topic suggestions and, uh, and whatever else. Uh, Blake Carney, in particular, he uh, he's been uh, out there spreading the good word of the show, telling his friends, telling his enemies, telling people about whom he, he feels largely ambivalent. So, good on you, Blake, and everyone else who is out there spreading the word of half Ass history. If you're a new listener, welcome by all means, welcome. So good to have you along. But I also want to thank uh, a number of patrons, patron members who have, patron members who have signed up uh, this week and have joined the exalted ranks of the people supporting me on Patreon. Patreon.com slash half history if you would like to join their ranks, gain access to ad-free listening, uncut episodes, behind-the-scenes stuff, all sorts of things, exclusive uh, merch at no extra cost as well. Uh, uh, comes your way if you're a member of the Patreon at any tier. 
but this week, a fresh co- uh, crop of patrons. We've got Alexandra's Titovs, Horns of Theseus, Jack Day, Christy Jones, uh, Fraser Thomas, and Simon Farkar. So thank you very much to all of those uh, all of those patrons and all the other patrons week in and week out who are supporting the show. It's uh, wonderful and very humbling to have your support week in and week out, as in as indeed it is to have the support of everyone listening to the show, uh, tuning in, telling people about the uh, about this Tin Pot History podcast. It's uh, it's deeply appreciated. So thank you so very much to everyone doing that. If you want to buy some Half Us History merch, you can. There's a merch shop for just follow the links at uh, halfhousehistory.net and. Uh, Keep an eye out for uh, Quarter Ass History this week. We'll be talking about the White Ship uh, monuments coming up a couple of days after that. And then, of course, next weekend back with another full-length episode for you to enjoy. Or at least listen to. I don't know. You don't have to enjoy it. You, as long as... Look, don't even have to listen to it. Just hit play. That's all that I really care about. Mate, just just get those downloads. Get the get those advertising dollars coming in, mate. You know that's that. That's the only reason I make this podcast. Got to get that money. All right. Um, I think that's it. Um... We're going to uh, close out the show, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. This one, bit of a thinker, this one. I, I really did enjoy it. It took me a while to get. Uh, might help if you write it down if you're not sure exactly what's going on here, but I don't want to spoil the joke. This one comes to us from Redditor Forte2. We've been talking a lot about anarchy this week, of course, and uh, this is an anarchy-related question. Forte2 wants to know, will a dose of anarchy help with prostate problems? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.